was throughout all those special forces, um, terrible things happened because those men were under such intense and ridiculous sustained pressure for such a long time um, with no way of telling their story when they came back here. Um, I think we are responsible for what happened there, all of us, and trying to blame one person for the crimes of all, in my opinion, all of us, uh, is, is shameful. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Ben Quilty is one of Australia's leading contemporary painters. His painting of Margaret Ollie won the Archibald. He helped teach Myron Sukumaran to paint in the time before he was executed in Indonesia for drug smuggling. Ben spent a month in Afghanistan embedded with Australian forces and travelled to refugee camps with Richard Flanagan, coming home to produce a book uh, showing the Syrian war through the eyes of children. His art touches on everything from masculinity to racial identity. Age 48, Ben lives with his wife and two children in the southern highlands of New South Wales. Ben, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Andrew. So you went to school in Kenthurst and had a Tirana. Uh, at about the same time, I went to school in Carlingford and had a Salika. So I sort of feel like I have a, a window into your, uh, your childhood. Um, but it, I reckon you're a bit more of a wild child than me. Is, uh, is, is that, uh, that right? I I'd love to look deeply into your past and I would give you a fair assessment of that. I, look, yes, there was... Um, there was, a, there was a level of dysfunction, I think, in the suburbs that I grew up with that's never been properly acknowledged and, and even less understood, I think, and something about possibly having the space. My parents wanted to live in West Pennant Hills um, and found a block of land that was infinitely bigger and much cheaper in Kenthurst, which back then was, was um, converted farmland. And... Um, and you would think that it was, it was a very tranquil and beautiful place to grow up, but the, the level, as I said, the levels of dysfunction were, were pretty extraordinary looking back on it. And, and, I, and that led me to studying feminist theory at the University of Western Sydney, to be honest, to try and understand what the, what the hell was going on in that part of my childhood. Very violent um, high school experience from, from um, religious brothers, from the De La Salle brothers, um, which then generated the, the, the dis violent dysfunction in the boys that I went to school with, but also more broadly in the community then. I, and I, I still don't really have my head around what, what was happening in that part of the world at that point. So how did your art uh, help you express that? You'd always been, a, been, been, been somebody who expressed themselves visually, hadn't you? Yes. Oh, look, I, I was very into music as well. I played piano and cello and listened to a lot of music and I, you know, as you'd know as well as I did that Guns N' Roses released Appetite for Destruction around the time I was in year nine and I thought, I, it feels like my whole community of young men have a fairly unhealthy appetite for destruction and that album was very apt. Nirvana, all those bands releasing music 
Um, and I remember thinking very early on that, that, the, that my outlet of art was a much healthier way of, of releasing pressure or tension or trying to solve problem solve, um, trying to be noticed. I mean, people often ask me when I was a younger man, um, starting out as an artist, why, I didn't, why was I into graffiti? And I probably would have been if there was anything to graffiti on, but there was no footpaths where I grew up, no skate parks, um, and nothing really to graffiti on. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, art just became a really good vehicle for that. And, and the, more, the, the older I get, the more I realise that, that it is the healthiest way for a society or parts of a society to, to not only announce that they exist and make people notice and aware of them, but also to let off steam, to, to release pressure in times of war in the Ukraine. I mean, the artists there are now really often at the forefront of, of, of building morale, um, of Russian people in Russia arguing against the invasion. They, they've, they've arrested thousands of artists and poets and filmmakers who jointly came out against the war in the Ukraine. Um, uh, it's a good community to be a part of. Um, and when there's a time of crisis like that, or, or really more broadly now, I think around the world, things that are happening, the, the way the climate is acting on us on the east coast of Australia now, there's something to make work about here. You've got no shortage of material, but uh, as you mentioned before, you know, you're, a, you're a feminist and uh, you're interested in masculinity. One of the challenges I know you've had is uh, uh, depicting uh, masculinity in a way in which you regard as problematic, but others see as celebrating. Uh, how, have you, uh, how have you wrestled with that? Well, that's a really, really good question. I, uh, recently, an incoming director at the Museum of Contemporary Art said that people are sick of straight white, a board of straight white men. And, um, and my mum picked up on that. My mum read it in the, in the newspaper and rang me furiously defending her three boys who are three straight white men and it's not and as mum said you're not my fault and neither should you ever be my fault um, but in the same breath that us straight white men more generally have caused havoc on on the planet in so many different ways um, but I can't step back from the fact that me and my brothers are all pretty uh, socially engaged um, I'd like to say the, the healthiest, healthier part of that straight white masculinity. As you said, I'm a feminist. Of course I'm a feminist. Who wouldn't be? I'm a straight white man. I'm, I'm, I'm in love with my wife and the female form and my, the femininity of, of my, my women folk in my life. Um, and I'm not ashamed of it. I, it is who I am. But there has had to be and there is happening a great reckoning of, of that masculinity and, and the flaws, which is what I talked about in my youth of the community that, that I grew up in. I think so much abuse happening of boys, physical, mostly physical abuse, but also sexual abuse to some of my very best mates who, who are children, who've gone on to leave, lead profoundly destructive lives. Um, and those questions are valid. But if you're going to come out and say that straight white men are boring, then you need to look out for people like my mum because she is going to come and get you. <laughs> she sounds formidable. Uh, in terms of uh, this, this issue, I guess it was uh, 
made particularly stark when you spent time as uh, uh, an artist embedded with Australian forces in Afghanistan. And I was thinking about that experience when reading the media reports of the Ben Robert Smith trial. Uh, you know, it just it struck me the more I read this that the the sense that we we really sent those special forces over to Afghanistan to do a lot of killing on behalf of Australia. Uh, how did you go about that role of, of artist in residence, uh, honestly depicting Australian soldiers without lionising them more than they deserved? Uh, well, I, I have a background. After going to art school, I ended up working in in the media, I worked as an, a tape editor across channel, mostly Channel 7, but through different news networks um, and current affairs networks. When I went to Afghanistan, the first thing that struck me that there was no journalists there. Um, and the breakdown between um, free press and, and free journalistic licence in a war zone and the lack of it, I think, was not only dangerous for the men there, but um, it was against every notion that I think we should share in a healthy democracy, that journalists were, the, were an enemy like the Taliban, which was linked in with the protected identity status of the special forces. And I think the Australian public needs to be aware that half of our force was protected identity status under two commando and SAS, so that we heard nothing. And not only did we hear nothing, there was no, really, in the end, and I think it's now being proven, there was no oversight. There was no one reporting back to try and hold anyone to account. And if you send men to war enough times, if you send them once, I met young men who were ruined by one experience, one nine-month deployment in Afghanistan. If you send them multiple times and there's no oversight and no, no journalistic oversight, and their protected identity status, so they believe that they are not only uh, uh, not allowed to share the stories that they've told, but also a sense of them being untouchable. Um, I think we as a community have to hold... We are responsible for what happened there, all of us, and trying to blame one person for the crimes of all... In my opinion, all of us, uh, is, is shameful. It's a continuation of the... Of, of the madness of why we were there in the first place, of why we invited, invaded Iraq. My mum asked me to, to march against the invasion of Iraq way back in the time, and I barely understood it back then uh, as well as I do now, and I did march, and, and we were right. The people were right. The invasion of Iraq was one of, I think, in modern, modern history, the most fatal and dangerous and ridiculous uh, military misstep in modern history. Um, which led to Afghanistan. Um, but saying that, I also heard the young men that I was there with in Tarrant particularly, whispers of what has, I think is, is the truth, and it wasn't just one soldier. I think it was throughout all those special forces um, terrible things happened because those men were under such intense and ridiculous sustained pressure for such a long time um, with no way of telling their story when they came back here. Uh, what do we expect? Their protected identity status meant that they felt they could never tell anyone about what had happened to them. That's just not the way. We're human, we're flesh and blood, we share that in common and it doesn't work and I think it will be proved more and more. I think this is only the beginning of the stories that will come out of Afghanistan, sadly.
How did you go about building trust with uh, the, the soldiers that you wanted to depict? I mean, it's not as though uh, painters and uh, elite special forces soldiers share a natural bond. Uh, uh, and I suppose this is a question about how you build trust with anyone who comes into your studio. Uh, what, do you, what do you do in order to ensure that you're kind of seeing a greater depth of them? When I deployed to Afghanistan, I was given a uniform, but it was different coloured to all of the... Uh, I was in navy blue, which I think they thought was funny that possibly the enemy would think I was a high-value target, but I was the lowest-value target, and probably the joke was on me in the end because um, I, I did use that as a, as a way in to just talk with them. They were puzzled as to why I would be on a deployment in a place like Tarancot, travelling through some very dangerous places on Chinooks and travelling around the countryside um, with an Australian flag on a sleeve here and official war artists from the War Memorial here, but in a colour that stands out in the desert. They, they, the, to answer your question bluntly, they, none of them trusted me because they had been programmed and, in my humble opinion, programmed from the Minister of Defence down not to trust anyone in the media. And it wasn't until I told people that I was from on deployment from the Australian War Memorial, and that was a place, that is still a place that they have entire faith and trust in, that they then opened up. And it was a very slow process, um, but once I'd had conversations with a couple, the word spread pretty quickly, and I have now lifelong friends that I met in Afghanistan who shared with me the trauma that they, some of them will suffer with for the rest of their lives, but also the things that went wrong. And, the, and I warned a number of people high up in government and War Memorial and all over the place about what I kept hearing. It didn't sound to me as though, why would anyone make those things up? Um, but at that point, there was a fervour to, to continue to engage in that war in a positive way. And any of that negative discussion around PTSD, but also around possible war crimes, was seen, and rightly so, seen as a, as a risk that could then lead men in combat into very dangerous positions if their heart wasn't in it. Um, but after 14 years, your heart... <laughs> I think it's inevitable that someone who's fighting on the ground in a combat like that, their heart ends up not being in it. Um, yeah. So have I answered your question? Yeah, you have. I was just thinking as you were talking about that uh, interplay between the decision maker and the war memorial. I remember once uh, uh, when my eldest son was very young, standing at the front of Parliament House where you can see down to the war memorial and explaining to him that you know the purpose of that access is that parliamentarians, when they're making decisions about sending troops to war, have to, to look out and be reminded by the war memorial of the cost. And he just looked at me and said, oh, Dad, if I was a politician, I'd never send troops to war. Uh, yeah, well, so it, it was, I think it was, done, it was done in our name because we followed America blindly. I mean, I don't think that's a debate, whether we did or we didn't. That's what happened. We followed America almost unquestioningly and um, to our detriment. And the funny thing is now America's dropping most of their war crimes investigations and moving on as though nothing happened and nothing to see here. And I'm very glad and very devastated at the same time that we are a community who expects to hold these people up to, to scrutiny. 
But for me, the big, bigger question is, do we hold everyone up to that scrutiny, including the head chiefs of army and at the minister's level? There, there has to be a reckoning at those levels that the people that were sent um, are doing so in our name and the whole structures that were set up for their combat really weren't very healthy. Yes, and that's a lesson that goes right back to Melai. Uh, I want to ask you, the, uh, shortly after that, you uh, formed a friendship with uh, Myron Sukumaran, who was then on death row in uh, Indonesia for drug trafficking. How did you form that, that relationship and, and what led you to, to agree to work with him on his art? I, um, I, I received an email out of the blue from a, uh, one of his barristers, Julian, um, Julian McMahon, who was working with Myron um, and had been working with him to, and Andrew Chan to try and um, uh, get them off death row and have put them on a life sentence in Indonesia. And uh, the questions that he asked in that email uh, showed very clearly that he'd gone a long way down the path of, of an art practice, that he was asking questions about medium that, that, that uh, mean he's, he's really actually given it a go. People ask silly questions like, how do you draw anything but a stick figure? He was asking quite technical questions um, and I was intrigued. It was a bizarre email to open. Uh, I gave him uh, a, pra a simple practice of drawing, turning the mirror on himself and drawing himself. And within two weeks, he'd covered the studio, his little studio wall in the prison in Karabakan with self-portraits. And, um, and I, was, I was hooked. I was so intrigued and impressed that he'd followed my advice, taken my advice and really run with, with the uh, set of um, uh, practice that I'd given him. And, um, and we became very good friends. He was, he'd become a, by the time I met him, he'd become a very um, impressive young man. And he then went on to teach art to other, other prisoners in Karabakan, I understand. He did. He, he by the time, I mean, I, I'd met his great, um, uh, the revolution that, that he and Andrew had been through to turn out, to turn away from drugs and heroin use to being um, leaders within that prison and running several education courses. And I was a guest into the education rooms that had been set aside by the prison. And the I'll never forget the first lesson that I'd, I was asked to give. I was going there to give Myron tuition and he said, please, please, would you spend half your time teaching a class and then give me some time on my own? Uh, and, I, and what struck me was there were several people in that class that weren't inmates. And when I quietly asked Myron, who are these people? He said, they were inmates and the prison is allowing them to come in from, from outside in, in Bali and Indon further afield to continue and complete their education. Um, that's not what you expect. And, uh, and uh, my brother, one of my brothers is a doctor and did part of his final prac years uh, of public health in Long Bay Prison. And I had very clear idea of what that prison was like and how almost impossible it would be uh, to become a better person after that experience. And then the media in Australia is saying that Karabakan Prison is the worst prison in Southeast Asia. It's the worst prison in Southeast Asia except for all of our prisons. 
which I think are much, much worse. So I started teaching there. I became, we had guards who were doing Myron's education. We had guards who were coming in on their days off to do, to do classes. We had lots of ex-inmates living in the community outside the prison coming in to continue their education. And then the thing that struck me the most was at the end of Myron's life, several commentators in Australia saying that Myron was making this all up to try and save his life. I, I mean, it's revolting. There's some revolting people in our country and the prison system is, is, is disgusting. It's appalling and it's, it's, less, it's less than third world standards for our prison inmates. Yeah, and you can see that in the recidivism uh, statistics. Um, t tell us about what's in a, a Ben Quilty introduction to painting class. I mean, you're obviously uh, uh, highly, highly trained through Sydney College of the Arts, but uh, for those of us who might think of uh, encouraging our kids to take up art or uh, uh, the, uh, the midlife crisis uh, suddenly turning to life drawing, uh, what are some things that you do in order to uh, switch people on to art? Well, look, my, my arm was the perfect example. He was making these big, pretty garish, ugly, pretty bad paintings of, of very famous Hollywood stars um, ripped out of magazines and copied onto canvas. And I just said, Myron, why, do you, why are you making these paintings? And he said, this is what people want to see. And I said, um, I'd rather see, I think you're a far more um, interesting subject considering your surroundings you are more interesting than Brad Pitt. And I hope Brad Pitt never hears this because I'm sure he's a very interesting person. But at that he's point... He's a regular listener, I'm afraid. <laughs> because of Myron's surroundings and because of his humanity and because of his life story and where he was travelling and the journey that he was on, he's an incredibly engaging subject. Uh, and all he needed to do was turn the mirror on himself. And I think that's the power. That's what art, at, at the core of it, is is for all of us. It, it's a tonic, it's a, it's a process to heal, it's a process to explore the world. And for children, it's very, very much a tool for them to be heard. Our society, even though there are constantly people trying to break this down, our society from the outside, from an Indigenous culture, for example, Australian Indigenous culture, children in our society are very much seen and not heard. Very, very, that's the way the structure is. We even have made up a date, your 18th birthday party, when you click over and become an adult. It's just absurd. Children have a voice, very, they're the future. They're, they, they inherit the world that we create for them. Uh, and art is, is an accepted vehicle within, that, within our community for them to be heard. And they should yell it out, make it as big as they can, and I'd, I'd urge any parents that one of, I mean, we've just done it without even thinking. When, I, when we go out to dinner with our children when they're tiny, always have drawing books. And from a, from a $2 store, you can, for, for $8, buy a very beautiful drawing book, hardbound, filled with pages. And those drawing books in my family are as important as our photo albums. They, they, they map out the lives of my children, not just in images of them, but from inside their heads onto that paper them learning to spell, them drawing the things that scare them most, them drawing the things that they love the most, including sometimes me and, and Kylie, my wife, sometimes we're the scary ones, sometimes not. Uh, it's a beautiful way to, to map out and remember childhood and, and a really powerful way for them to be heard and seen and noticed. 
You've also compiled the uh, drawings of uh, Syrian refugee children in your, your wonderful book, Home. Uh, what, is, what is different about the way a child depicts a war? And uh, tell me more about your view that we should depict all wars through the eyes of children. Yeah, well, I, I was in Serbia with, Rich, with my friend Richard Flanagan. We were travelling, following the refugee trail up towards Germany. And, uh, and I was there to, to illustrate something for Richard. Richard was writing for Guardian in London and the New York Times and, and he'd been offered a place of, of a, a photographer or someone to illustrate and he said, I'd like to take Ben. And to be honest, at the beginning it was pretty overwhelming. It's a very, very big story for me to tell. And I was sitting with a tiny little girl named Heber in a transit station in the middle of snowy, free, minus 20 degree landscape and Richard started interviewing her parents and I took her and her friends, siblings and friends aside and I got them all to draw and I asked... She was a little girl who had a facility and, and a facility for drawing and a very natural and unaffected way of doing it, not worrying what anyone thought, just drawing and drawing. And I asked her through a translator to draw her home and she looked at me poignant, like in my eyes looked at me and I said, yes, home thinking, why is she asking, why, what was her look, what, what, what was she trying to say? And then translator urged her, yes, this man wants you to draw your home with my beautiful paper and my pencils that I gave her. And she drew the, drew the most powerful image in that book of a, a tiny little ruined pile of rubble, really, with two dead bo two bodies bleeding from the heads on either side of it and clearly an attack helicopter above it with two barrel-shaped bombs falling on it. And at that moment I thought, I, I, I can't... That's not my story and, and I can't tell that story. There's nothing authentic about me being a, a, a privileged white man living in a beautiful rolling green rural town in Australia. Nothing authentic about me telling that story and that's when I started to hand it over to those children and they were given the opportunity not only to draw their home, but what they either what they hoped their home would become, what they remembered their home was, uh, and and the words that they that they wanted to fit with that drawing. And we then translated the whole thing and put it into a book. Um, and you're right, it's very powerful. And I, I, the thing I think that that struck me, and we're now seeing it in Ukraine, is the way governments. Um, play and we, our government has done it too, particularly through Afghanistan. I saw it firsthand, the use of propaganda to try and um, affect an outcome. Children have no propaganda. It's not some, it's, it's propaganda is a very sophisticated um, tool for adults. It is way beyond 18 before you understand what, how to properly harness and use or misuse propaganda. And there's not a drawing in there that hasn't, a, a, tiny bit of it it's just the truth and that's why I think those children and children now in Ukraine I hope someone's trying to tell that, that same story through those children's eyes um, free of free of propaganda it, it, it's a proper record in some ways 
So you're uh, extraordinarily prolific, and one of the uh, uh, series of paintings that caught my eye was uh, your series on uh, one aspect of toxic mas masculinity, which was uh, reconceptualising uh, Father Christmas. Uh, I'd always uh, thought of Father Christmas as uh, as a sort of uh, beautiful myth, but uh, you uh, you took Father Christmas on quite directly. Uh, why is that? Look, I I agree with you. It is a beautiful myth. It was some, one of the most treasured parts of my childhood growing up and all those myths. I mean, my parents gave me, the op me and my brothers the opportunity to have very big imaginations. There was gnomes always living around our house. There was fairies that sometimes came in, but the gnomes often kept them away. The gnomes had been there a lot longer than us and had and had, had a lot of contact with Indigenous Australia. Um, you know, and then Santa would fly in with flying reindeer once a year. I mean, it's just a treasured thing to have that for children to believe in. Um, but uh, for me, Santa Claus, and, and having read the history of where St Nicholas and what that history is, um, I just think that poor, that poor, poor bearded man's been hijacked by, by capitalism gone mad. Um, and he seemed like... He, he, funnily enough, he's also the, the, the figure, the form, the big tummy, the beer gut, for want of a better term, the big beard and the hand, you know. He's also a bikey when he takes that gear off and puts on leathers. It's the same figure that we, that is now, um, the nude Santa is the form of the most aggressively masculine figure in our society. And, and, and I hope that people saw that there was a sense of humour in it. There were some commentators, mostly from the very far right, who just... I've, I've made a lot of paintings and a lot of them quite political, but that was a step too far. You do not desecrate Santa Claus, which I thought, come off it. I can desecrate what I want. I'm not desecrating anything. I'm exploring and trying to ask questions. And in a sense, I hope my children thought I was standing up for Santa, that Santa's not about those, those notions of, of, of capitalism run riot and and growth at all costs, that that, he, that that figure was about care and love and nurturing and, and a beautiful, beautiful memory in, in a child's mind. As a dad, uh, I've always had a sort of, I mean, it is, as I said before, it's a beautiful myth, but it jars against my instinct never to lie to my kids, uh, to, uh, to, to tell this, you know, frankly a fabrication uh, and I, I've never quite been able to resolve that one I'm never quite sure whether we you know Gwyneth and I did the right thing in uh, in telling them that Santa was real and that uh, uh, a, a another man would be sneaking into the house at night to deposit presents for them <laughs> look I, I remember I'm, I'm a gardener I love gardening and I had a beautiful back lawn small piece of lawn and one night I was out there with a wheelbarrow down to the paddock a few doors down, filling the wheelbarrow up with cow manure, coming back and digging massive, massive carved out sleigh skids across the back lawn and dumping half a, a wheelbarrow of manure on it. So look, I, and throughout that night, I drank the beer and ate the biscuits with the guilt of the lie too. So I don't have any answers for you with that, except to say that at some point in our lives to dream and we're, we're programmed not to do it. And that's why art is such a wonderful thing. You continue that. You, we're, we're actually, our imagination is meant to be switched off at some point. Around the time of 12 or 14, I think if boys, little boys in our community still love to draw, there'll be, there'll be some really disparaging voices from the adult community about you shouldn't be doing that. As though there's some connotation that your imagination 
for some reason is unhealthy. Um, and I think the longer that you have that, and I hope I've managed never to let mine completely be extinguished, that, that, that creative thought is a great way of solving problems in a, in a very um, positive way and we should continue to do it. So I don't lie about anything bad, but in terms of creating other worlds for a child's brain, it's exponential growth. Imagination leads to all sorts of happy, happy adults, I think. So as one of Australia's most successful contemporary artists, I want to delve a little bit more into uh, how you do your work. Uh, are you, how many hours a day are you spending in the studio? Do you often discard works? Uh, what, what's your secret to being so productive at such a high level of quality? Uh, look, it, it's like any job, and I don't have a boss, I'm the boss. It's about turning up and working really, really hard. And, and there's a lot of the romance that people perceive in it is not really there, it's tough. In the mornings, my studio is often very cold. Um, it's pretty unforgiving, it's hard surfaces. It stinks like turps and oil paint. I wear gloves, sometimes a mask and overalls. But if I get into it early in the morning at nine o'clock, by midday, I, I don't want to leave. I've um, since we had children, I, I've been very dedicated to taking them to school and picking them up. So my day is actually bookended by school drop-off and pick-up. Even though now Joe's in year 11 and Olivia's in year 8, they still think the school bus is a bit hard work for them. Um, and they know that I'm dedicated to picking them up and dropping them off. But um, it, I, I fill up my time and I'm here every day that I can be. It's like any, I think anyone who's successful, that term practice is a good, good way of explaining it. If you're a great footballer, practice is the key. Um, same as yoga or, or legal practice even. Um, practice means to show up and do it over and over and over again. That's really <laughs> the secret. You're passionate about a lot of issues, but do you ever want for inspiration? Do you ever find yourself standing there with brush in hand, not being sure what to do? Uh, no, no, no. I, I look, I, I have... There's days where you think, is this the right direction? Am I headed in the right direction? But um, I, I remember a, a very famous artist, Chuck Close, in America, who said... Uh, inspiration is for amateurs the rest of us just show up to work um and and i think that's perfect description for it and my friends like richard flanagan and kylie my partner who's just written a novel um if you if you wait for the words to fall out it's never going to happen you have to get into the practice of doing it every day it's really that simple how long does a typical painting take you to do well look the margaret ollie painting only took it took an hour and 45 minutes between us. Um, <coughs> Not bad to win the, win the Archibald in no, no, uh, less than two hours. It did all right. But saying that, it's, it's, you know, I've been making art since, really, since I could walk. I haven't stopped. I just never stopped. I went to art school at the end of high school against my parents and against the whole community's better judgment. And, I, and that actually really emboldened me to put more and more and more time into it. Uh, so there's some works in the studio at the moment that are, that are very, very slow, long burn that will take months and months, but other things, that, that idea that if you come to the studio you don't, often don't feel like being here and you don't have a whole lot of um, 
a lot of willpower to get yourself doing it. If you have something small and easy just to knock it out, to actually get that creative process happening, um, to then work your way up to the things that take a long, long time. And that's the same with all my artist friends. So I see a bit of Francis Bacon, a bit of Salvador Dali when I look at your work. Who are the, the artists you've really drawn inspiration from? I look, less, less about the, um, well, uh, there's artists around the world at the moment. George Kondo is one of my favourite artists. Um, um, Jenny Savile, I've, I've loved her work for many, many years. But, but it's less about um, the subject matter of what these people are doing now and more about the creative process and the output, the way people make things. And nothing, I mean, the greatest privilege I've had in my adult life has to been to have friends and colleagues in remote Indigenous communities. There's nothing that comes close to it. Um, Wallampiri, Japuljari and Yukulti Napangadi walked out of the desert, desert with their parents in the, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. They'd never met a, seen a white person or a car. And they are now making paintings that are being shown at Gagosian Galleries, the biggest commercial gallery in the history of the human race. They're, to, to, to that level, the most famous white, sorry, the most famous Australian artists on the planet at the moment. And we don't even really know who they are. Um, Sylvia Ken, um, Betty Pumani, um, the list, Vincent Namajira, um, they're just mind-blowing, the, the, the output. And, and I think it speaks very much to the fact that it's just an innate thing. Creativity is, is, is like making food or, 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 or making love or, or, or raising children or living and breathing on the planet and creativity is just as important as those things. And we absolutely in our community, our society, European-based societies, have somehow over the years deleted that. And if you go back to the, you know, the, the Italian Renaissance, um, drawing was as, as important as philosophy and mathematics. It was every single child, and this is what's lost on it, every child who was, who was lucky enough to have an education in that community could draw like da Vinci. Da Vinci just used the drawings in, in the most complex and profoundly world-altering ways, but everyone could draw. And now, you know, how many times do you hear an Australian male say, I can't even draw a stick figure? As though it's a badge of honour that you can't do, that you have no access to your inner creative being. Um, and all those remote artists have just shown me over and over again. I, 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 I've only a few times in the world stood in front of a painting that's brought me to tears and every single time it's been in a remote community in front of a masterpiece, a, a breathtaking human endeavour that, that, that is indescribably astounding. I, I don't know how else to say it. And that's on our country where I'm lucky enough to be an Irish-blooded white man living on those people's land and they're still, some of them are lucky enough to still be living and making work the way they have for that for many, many years. Yeah, the, uh, the depiction of the landscape is something extraordinary. I remember uh, driving through the McDonald Ranges for the first time and just feeling like I was literally inside an Albert Namanjira painting. You know, that same sense I get when I 
walk onto a Perth beach and feel like I'm in a, a Tim Winton novel or uh, see a, a Tasmanian river and feel like I'm in a Richard Flanagan novel. Uh, that ability just to, to capture everything around you is, uh, is just breathtaking. Yeah, the, Mac, the uh, McDonnell Ranges, the McDonnell Ranges, I spent a lot of time around there because it's uh, pit and jar land and beautiful country. But the, 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 the Aboriginal term for those mountain ranges is Yipperinya. And Yipperinya is also the little grub that lives in the trees and that, are, that make that shape along the branches. Um, yeah, it, it's part of me. I'm very, we're very lucky to live on this country, that's for sure. We certainly are. I'm, I'm also curious about your views as to being a good consumer of art. Uh, you've been a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales and uh, uh, I'm sure you have uh, ideas as to how people should move through art galleries. Uh, you know, I, for me, one of the big revelations was Robert Hughes' American Visions and getting that sense that there can be uh, art that you really hate as well as art that you like. Uh, he's got this lovely line where he says, uh, 1985 New York, Prices are through the through the roof, um, but no one could no no artist could draw as well as Goya or Tipolo, uh, and uh, and it was through Robert Hughes dissing artists that I came to uh, to to sort of uh, love art all the more. Uh, how do you consume art when you move through uh, a gallery like the Art Gallery in New South Wales? Yeah, it's a really good question and a question that people were asking with all the art forms. How do we compete with, you know, mass media and reality TV and um, looking at ourselves through the lens of, of, um, of Instagram or, or, or the other ones that I've forgotten the names of? Um, I, I... Well, look, such a good question. I think that the art, well, the art gallery of New South Wales, let me use that as an example, it's a huge place. There's no point going there and expecting to see the whole thing. Go there to, I go there to see one thing. At the moment, there's a tiny little room in the old courts that has um, Goya's etchings, extraordinary little etchings, very violent, very violent, um, macabre, bizarre, tiny little etchings, and in front of them, Caroline Rothwell sculptures and Caroline's a contemporary artist probably in her mid-50s um, and that tiny little room is just mind-blowing and I took my 12-year-old in there the other day, 13-year-old in there the other day and she, it took, she, she gasped, she, it took her breath away when she walked in there um, and that's all we needed to see. We then went and saw Matisse of course and ran around um, but an art gallery, I think, and this is this is the way they were many years ago, and, and then we we somehow society made them very highbrow and very um, inaccessible to, to 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 all of us. But now you can run in there, you can yell out as loud as you want, and go and see everything you want, and ride the escalators as many times as you need to, and go and see stuff. Go down to the bottom of the art gallery of New South Wales into Yerubana, where the indigenous art is in a transformed storage shed which is an embarrassment but is all being addressed with Sydney Modern and the new building that they're building. Um, I, I think it's just, I, I, I devour it when I go. The new, new rooms at the National Gallery of Australia are mind-blowing. The way the director has brought some of those rooms back to what, how the, the architect planned them and that took my breath away with the collection that that gallery has. And he has put Tiepolo's in front of 
next to blue poles and played around with those those um, hierarchies, for want of a better word. Um, yeah, I, I just think... And every regional gallery. I mean, we've just opened a new regional gallery down here. Regional galleries are so, so important for little communities around Australia to go, and I think they should be free, like a library. And they're something that you should be able to go several times a year and see the way they... If the director's doing their job and working hard, changing that whole place so that you have a new experience and see the world through a new lens when you walk in there and possibly have a, a, a different view of the world when you work, walk out. Yeah, and the lovely thing about free galleries is you can just pop in for, you know, even 20 minutes just to che check something out. Uh, I loved uh, working when I was a High Court Associate next to the National Gallery of Australia or when I was in uh, Sydney, a Sydney lawyer being able to pop across to the New South Wales Art Gallery for lunchtime. It changes the way you consume it. Uh, what what about when you're with kids? I mean, I the only tip that I have, uh, or the only trick I have with uh, with my kids is uh, if they're looking a bit bored, I ask them uh, if you could steal one painting from this room and put it on your wall. Which one would you would you steal? And sometimes that gets them to sort of focus in a bit. But but how do you travel through art galleries with your kids? Well, look, my kids have just seen so much art. They. Um, I do think that it's about that breaking down the hierarchy a bit, um, but my children are very happy in a gallery. And I think one of the key things is, and I was in Matisse with my daughter the other day and she started photographing, the, not what I expected, the most abstract works at the end of his life, the big abstract cutouts, and she just photographed and photographed them. She was very struck by it. Um, but there was a, a, a young woman in there with a little child, two-year-old, who, as those spaces often are, very hollow and, and very uh, um, noise reverberates in extraordinary ways, who kept yelling, ah, ah, and she was, shh, and I said quietly to her, he, he can make as much noise as he wants in here, and if someone is offended, tell me, I'll come over and say, you need to leave, this child is having the experience, and it might be audible and visual, and I, I don't know, they... If, if, if you're listening to us now and you think that a child shouldn't be able to make noise in an art gallery, you should be rich enough to build your own private one because children have a very important place in there and I love hearing children make those yelling noises when they suddenly realise that there's an echo in a room, that a room can be big enough, bigger than their bedroom, to hear that make their voice reverberate. Um, that's the beginning of a life of, of, I think, having an expansive mind, of being able to see the world in different ways, of being creative. And there's such important things, not just for the world to be a better place, but also for those individuals to reach their potential. Yes, and I love that uh, that notion of irreverence, uh, sort of going back again to Robert Hughes. I, I really am taken by his uh, intense dislike of Andy Warhol, who by some measures is the most influential artist, American artist of the 20th century. Uh, but uh, but having, having Hughes have really strong views on Warhol uh, opened up art to me in a way that, uh, that, that others, other things wouldn't have done. Yep, agreed. Ben, let me ask you a couple of final questions I ask all my guests. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> okay, so honestly, I, 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 and I, look, it's pretty widely known. I, got, I had a, 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 a teacher who gave me the strap many, many times. Um, and I, I was a clever kid. I ducked 
English and religion in my first year of high school, first or second year of high school, and I remember after coming first in one um, essay that I'd written about the way religion, different religions coexist on the planet, and I was 12, and I came first in the year and several hundred kids, and he took me into his office and gave me the strap for coming first. And what I now realise is that I held on to that until I was in my mid-30s and I shouldn't have held on to it. I should have told someone much, much, much sooner, even if it was a friend. And I think for children, and we all know it, we know, all us adults know that that's what we did. What we did and what we do is that children need to be encouraged to talk, speak their mind and to, um, to share those particularly those darker things, but anything, just to, to have, be more vocal, I think. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, I used to believe in the Australian cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> and if my son hears me that what we've just said to each other, he will disown me. But, um, yeah, I used to believe in the Australian cricket team. I believed in Steve Waugh. When are you most happy? Uh, d definitely. If I Look, well, when am I most happy? I, I'm the most happy in my studio, but if my family would move into the studio and let me paint 24 hours a day, I'd be even happier. <laughs> and, and you know what? I'm the most happy on camping with my family in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else like it in this. In, uh, and that's the one thing I think, and you'd know it, how lucky we are to have this country and the places that we can camp and see the stars and, and consider eternity and consider the future and the past all under that, that massive sky is, um, is really when I'm the most happy and fulfilled for sure. You're a studio guy. Have you ever thought about going uh, Heidelberg School and uh, taking the canvases out to us? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, that's in, in our car camping. There's always plenty of drawing materials in the back always drawing outside. It's a pleasure. But for me, drawing the landscape in Australia is a very loaded thing for me. I feel that uh, I, cannot, I can't just draw the beauty of that place without acknowledging what's happened since my first forebears came here. What happened to the people who loved it just as much and probably a lot more than I do when I'm lying under those stars for thousands and thousands of years and what they've lost and it's impossible for me to make those painting, paintings of those places without acknowledging that. So it's always been a bit fraught for me, landscape painting. Not that I'm saying people shouldn't do it, but personally for me it's very loaded. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Gardening. Digging what holes. Oh, veggies. Today, uh, today I went home and a, the, my, a, a Chinese elm that I planted 15 and a half years ago has fallen over, and I was devastated. So I had, I had a whole lot of neighbours and 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 strong people coming, cutting all the big branches off and trying to stand it back up, and I think it's gone. But um, yeah, growing vegetables, growing everything, growing a lot of natives, growing amazing waratahs where we live. It's very volcanic soil and it, it, waratahs were endemic to the area. Um, even fixing up land, taking out blackberries, I, it's just really very, very good thing for my brain and for my body. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, guilty pleasures? 
<laughs> yeah, I still listen to Ramstein. I still listen to some death metal that I probably should have outgrown by now, I would say, between us. <laughs> Do you listen to music while you're uh, painting? Always, yes. I was listening to Miles Davis's uh, Sketches of Spain this morning, and what an extraordinary album. And Kylie walked in and said, what? I feel like I'm about to be shot in some American Western movie. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, yeah, always listening to music, always. It doesn't distract you? No, no. I, I, if I don't, I can hear myself breathing and snorting and it's not a, not a happy place for me. <laughs> and finally then, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Wow, it's a big question. Uh, well, yes, I would say... Um, I would say that, well, when I, I, I actually got kicked out of art school halfway through it, I was still struggling to find myself and um, reconcile my youth with who I thought I'd become and who I wanted to become and who I was becoming. And I, I left art school. I was asked to leave. I said, they said, if you defer, you can come back. If you don't defer, we're going to fail you and you're out. So I deferred very indignantly. How dare they do that? It was a great um, a lifesaver for me. Went around Australia for six months, came back and studied Aboriginal culture and history at Monash, through Monash University by correspondence. And the course study back then, which I'm sure was really, the Monash was just having a very strong say in the culture wars of the time, um, was all about Aboriginal massacres, which I knew nothing about. And the first thing I did was research through the National Library of Australia my, my surname and Indigenous massacre. And straight away um, a massacre came up from a quilty in the Kimberley who killed a whole community for stealing two cows. His name was Tom, was Paddy Quilty. And there was one surviving baby on that, uh, from that community and he told his men, we're going to raise that child and we'll call him Paddy after me. And it was on Bedford Downs. So they called him Paddy Bedford, who went on to become one of the greatest artists that's come out of this country. Uh, and for me, I never met him, but it makes me emotional considering him and thinking about what he did and the way he did it, the way he lived his life with such dignity. Uh, and, and really lived and breathed reconciliation, even though his entire family history had been wiped out by the man who gave him his name. Um, and every single painting that he made was, was a continuation of what had happened to his family, so that his art was very separated from the way he lived in the world. And for me, that's very powerful. Not tweet out your anger, not use Twitter as a tool to, to yell at the world, but to do it through my art. And so Paddy Bedford would be that person. What a story. Uh, ben Quilty, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. I hope there was some wisdom in there, and I really appreciate you having me and that you do it, mate. It's very impressive. There were bucket loads of it. Thank you again. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this chat with Ben Quilty, I reckon you might like the past episodes where I talk with Carl Vine and Cathy Wilcox. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. It really helps others find the show. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest, 
to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.